Hey, Gunner, how's it going? All right, guys, how are you? Good, good. So I did an event a couple weeks ago, the HPE Public Sector Summit, uh, mm-hmm. where I was on a panel with uh, uh, talking about uh, 5G and the future of connectivity at the edge. Sounds exciting, right? Oh, right, and newly relevant now that both of us have been vaccinated. Right, yeah, We. I got 5G, I'm getting 6G. I'm picking up a little <laughs> bit of 6, 6G with my shot. Um, nice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so I so one of the people on the panel uh, was Eric Berger from from Georgetown University, Dr. Eric Berger. And it was it was the whole thing was just a hoot. Now, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it's like uh, Eric and I connected afterwards and uh, we were just uh, passing things back and forth and mentioned the podcast. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a hoot. And I'm like, well, do you want to be on it? And he's like, well, sure. And and. So here's Eric. So w- welcome, Eric. Hi, uh, great to great to see you here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what you know, we talked uh, a, a lot about five G, and you you span so many different technologies and stuff. Do you want to, Eric, give us a little uh, background of your your origin story and how how did you get to Georgetown? Sure, uh, and yeah, as you saw with the breath, it, how should we say? You wouldn't be surprised. It was a windy road to get to where I am today. And it's nowhere near where I expected it to be. Yeah. Uh, when I when I headed off to university, I thought I was going to be an academic researcher. So I went to MIT. You know, it's a research institution that happens to have students. Yeah. Uh, and I got to do graduate research as an undergraduate. And then I was lured by Silicon Valley. Um, I established an R&D center in Europe and lived in Belgium for almost six years. And then I totally blew my academic research career because I got my MBA while I was out there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, Then I came back to the U.S. I stumbled into the telecommunications industry. I uh, started or turned around and then sold five companies in nine years, uh, which, you know, clearly doing that, I was well on my way to get my PhD in computer science. I mean, I think that would be logical. <laughs> yeah, right. Next time. Uh, yeah, that's what everybody does. That's right. Although, you know, to be, to be uh, clear, I, di- I didn't do that thinking, well, now I'm going to be a, a university professor. Uh, the reason I did it was I had been proposed for a federal advisory committee, and the commission didn't notice until the end of the process that I didn't have a PhD. So I went and got my PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, now... <laughs> Kind of a cart before the horse thing there. But exactly, exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't confuse sales with delivery. Right? That's right. <laughs> now, now, of course, who knew that, you know, I'd later get a call from my thesis advisor saying that uh, they were rebooting the computer science department at Georgetown and asked if I could come over and help him for a year to establish a research program. Uh, and knowing me, he said, you know, I know you're going to go start or restart another company, but, you know, just come for a year. Uh, and in a sense, you kind of know the end of the story because that was over 10 years ago and I still haven't left. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, in a sense, he was right. And that one of the reasons I love academia, besides the energy of the students and creating the cutting edge of technology, is that when someone calls me up and asks me if I can serve on an advisory board or a corporate board, instead of saying, uh, you know, no, that would be moonlighting and my company would never allow it. Georgetown says, wait, what? Industry thinks yeah. you're relevant. Awesome! Yeah. Here's a raise. Yeah, it's it's not a bug; it's a feature. <laughs> That's right. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah, on the academic side, one of my areas of specialization is cybersecurity. Uh, and in terms of an origin so- story, you might remember I lived in Belgium for a while. Well, 
before it was cool and commonplace. In fact, the Soviet Union was still a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, through the 1980s equivalent of Google, namely visiting a library, uh, a criminal stole my identity. You know, he was able mm. to figure out my birth date. He got my so social security number. And as an added bonus, he got my driver's license number, which he didn't expect to do. And it was pay dirt for him. Um, you know, I had so much more credit than I thought I had. I, you know, he bought <laughs> trucks and gift cards and all that. Um, now, he was quite smart in getting my identity, but he was unlucky in that he did have a day job. He was a bricklayer. And it happened that he had a job at the detective's house that was on my case. Uh, so, you know, because, you know, in those days, they would take a picture of you when you cash checks and stuff like that. So uh, the police officer, the police detective staked out his own house. The guy showed up. He arrested him. Uh, the guy told him the whole story. So that's how I know the story. And then after telling the story, he said, what kind of deal are you going to give me? And the guy was kind of like, uh, you know, no deal. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, thank you very much. So, you know, kind of since then, I've been working hard to make it difficult for criminals to do their thing, you know, whether it's mm -hmm. identity theft, fraud through robocalls, data exfiltration. And then in this windy road, somehow I meet these characters, you know, first Gunnar and then Dave. And, and now yeah. I know I've led a charmed life. Well, no, <laughs> it's, it's funny. I, it's like, I like for you to connect with me on LinkedIn, I needed to give you a blood test and, and a hair sample <laughs> and, and all kinds of things to prove who I am. And I really admire that because, uh, Few people do that. It's like, oh, it's somebody it might be I know, and then they connect and they'll, they'll use that. And and actually, you and I saw that where somebody connected with me, and then they're name dropping me of of like, oh, I see you're connected with Dave, and 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 it's like, oh, we go way back, and it's like, no, I just met this person, you know. So yeah, yeah. And well, speaking of that, let's let's talk about like on the panel. One of the things that we talked about, uh, speaking of, of mostly trusted things, but yeah, we we talked. Yeah, a lot of times you hear about trusted computing, um, and you know, compared to just like untrusted computing. But one of the things that really piqued my interest was that you talked about mostly trusted systems and networks. And what 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 did you mean by that? Yeah. So you know, I mean, much of security these days is through human trust. Mm -hmm. So like uh, uh, using a data broker or you're building a data lake, you know, that, that, that is secure. And it's mm -hmm. secure because we promise not to look at your data mm -hmm. unless, of course, you ask us to look at your data or law, law enforcement officer has a subpoena or we feel like looking. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's mostly secure. And, you know, a lot of people have put a lot of uh, faith in uh, like blockchain and distributed ledger technology. Uh, and, you know, that is secure because we promise there are no bugs or backdoors. Um, and, and, you know, blockchain does kind of help us a little bit there because you can look at code, you can look at behaviors. But at the end of the day, you know, we're still relying on humans. Uh, and in fact, like talking about no bugs or backdoors, uh, you know, there's a real question of, you know, do I really know what my supply chain is? Uh, there's a company you might be familiar with. Uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, there were some investments in it, Black Duck Software. Oh, right. Right. Yeah, you know, they, they, they had bought by Synopsys. Yeah. Yeah. They were bought by Synopsys. Uh, so they had like 75 million of investment over about a period of 10 years. And uh, Synopsys bought them for over half a billion dollars. 
and what do they do? What's their business? Their business is helping companies, enterprises find open source software that's in their software that they didn't know was in their software. Right. Uh, and, and that's like nothing malicious. That's just, right. you know, programmers doing their thing. Um, now, you know, is that a security issue? Well, I mean, people kind of figured out, and I think that's what put an extra zero on the valuation of uh, Black Duck is uh, people realize, you know, if I don't know what's in my software for good reasons, maybe someone's doing it for bad reasons. Uh, but really, it was uh, an application of what we around here call Shockey's Law, or money's the answer, what's the question? A lot of these open source tools have uh, copy left provisions that make it kind of really hard to make a business out of it if you incorporate it. So that's what started it. But, you know, software uh, security really and supply chain security has really come to the fore. Uh, and I will put in the pitch for uh, NTIA as a software bill of materials or SBOM initiative. And hopefully that'll kind of shine a spotlight on getting uh, vendors uh, and enterprises that incorporate software and integrate software to kind of look at, you know, where is it coming from and what's in it? Yeah. And, so, and it turns out we've talked about SBOM on the show before. And it, and so SBOM, for those who missed that episode, um, the idea is that uh, a company should be able to account for where all of their software came from and label that software appropriately so that when uh, Someone, when a company, say a, a Goldman Sachs, goes and downloads your your software package, they can see not just what software you wrote, but what software you've incorporated from other sources, and thereby mm -hmm. presumably increasing the amount of trust you have in the, or at least giving you the ability to either trust or not trust um, where that where that software came from. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking as a speaking as someone who would be a victim of the S bomb process, uh, <laughs> the, well, you didn't, um, we didn't define S bomb yet. What what what? Uh, Oh, it's, uh, sorry, secure bill of materials, right? Software bill of materials. Software bill of materials. Yeah. Software bill of materials. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and it's and that is it sounds simple, and it sounds a like a perfectly reasonable ask. But Eric, as you know, I'd be uh, especially as that you know, so I'm in charge of Rel, and Rel itself is the it comes from sixteen something like sixteen thousand upstream software projects, right? Um, and uh, we have spent a great deal of blood and treasure uh, keeping track of all of them. <laughs> and uh, it is no simple task to uh, to create to uh, to comply with this SBOM. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's it's for real. And even then, that's only the first step in a much longer process. That then, having provided that information to the end customer, and the end customer has to make intelligent decisions based on the information that we give them. Right. Um, so it's a it's a, that is a fascinating and surprisingly difficult topic. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, well, I'm glad that you're working on it because uh, I know Alan's been working hard on getting it out there, and uh, it's it's gotten a lot of traction. So it's, you know, we'll see if it makes a difference now. Yeah. And so one of the challenges with with the S bomb is that's just the first step in a much longer process where the where the customer then has to pick up the information provided inside this bill of materials and then be able to make intelligent choices based on it. Um, but if you know, Eric, I, I think you and I both have, have gone through this and, and it's almost turtles all the way down, right? Uh, because it's, you have an S-bomb, but you know, have to tie that S-bomb has to be somehow connected to the actual software that is being shipped. That is, how can I prove that this S-bomb is actually connected to the software that's installed on my system? And in order to do that, I have to trust not just the source of the development material, but also I need to understand as SolarWinds taught us, also now I need to understand where the, how, how this thing got installed. Where did it come from? Did it come from a trusted source? Did that trusted source then in turn get it from another trusted source and so on? 
Um, and that leads you down inevitably down this conversation about, yes, the security of the supply chain generally, but also specifically things like that uh, we've talked with Dr. David Wheeler about things like reproducible builds. Um, so being able to prove that, yes, this software that I know came from this source was built in thus and such a way. And and as, as Dr. Wheeler tells us, uh, really the only good way of proving that the software that uh, that is that is on my build materials has been built in the correct way is to have uh, say three different people build it exactly in the same way and then have it all signed and as long as the output then is identical across those three now I know that that software is safe. Now uh, I am no logistics expert and I am not in finance but that sounds uh, like an awfully expensive way to manage software. <laughs> that sounds yeah, like a lot CICD, of work. Um, yeah, yeah uh, that yeah, would be yeah, right. very yeah, very expensive. Right. Yeah, um, and also suggests and also uh, and also requires that we have like a fairly robust encryption infrastructure, right? Uh, that can handle the signing and the keying and the and the, and the tagging and the hashing of of all this material. Um, I'm wondering, has that been a part of your work? Or is, uh... Yeah, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on digital signatures. And uh, have you had a description of digital signatures in past episodes? I'm, I'm sure we have, but we could benefit from a refresher. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I'll probably say something totally wrong and different, but I'll, I'll give you something different. And I'll, I'll put it in simple terms, because uh, like with Dr. Wheeler, you, know, you can get people who, who, who do do this all the time. Uh, although this techniques actually kind of go back to uh, a system called uh, SCCS back in, yeah, there was this thing before RHEL called Unix. You might have heard of it. Hmm, tell uh, me more. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so from the 1980s, uh, so not quite the 70s, uh, uh, one thing that this uh, system would do is it would do a checksum, basically like Add, add together, do a mathematical transformation on the source code, and you'd come up with a number. Uh, and, uh, you know, changing, you know, a little bit in that file would totally change the number. So you could just say, you know, am I checking out the same version? Well, I'll do that calculation, come up with a number. Uh, okay. And if the number is the same, great. Now, I remember hacking my own systems and it's like, okay, no, I really need to change that old thing. So I'll recalculate the number and put that number into the database. And, oh, look, the numbers match. I'm good, uh, which is fine when it's me building my own thing. But uh, when you're like in a real world uh, where you need trust, uh, you don't want to let that happen. So one thing we can do is use a little bit of public key cryptography uh, where I'll give everyone my public key, and with my private key, I'll take that number that I've calculated and I'll encrypt it with my private key. And so the idea is you do that same transformation on whatever it is I've given you, whether it's my email, uh, telephony signaling, which is where I've been doing most of this work, or um, source code or object code, you calculate it, and then you take that uh, signature that I provided with my private key, you decode it with the public key. And, oh, look, the numbers match. Life is good. Um, frankly, this is why solar wind scared everybody. Because an adversary got effectively got, they didn't get the private key, but they got into the build process. But same result. Mm-hmm. You know, trusted, yep, that's what solar wind said they built. And it wasn't, or it was it was what they built, but it wasn't what they thought they built. Um 
I would offer that's also kind of an outlier. You know, yes, that happens, but uh, that doesn't mean, oh, we should throw out the, the, the whole process and the concept. Uh, so the concept of, you know, builds, doing the checksum, letting other people build it, seeing it comes out the same, and because it's signed means someone can't change the files between my producing them and you compiling them, that's pretty good. But what makes it really, really hard is, uh, as you said, it's the whole environment. If I've got my own library and my own compiling environment that's different than yours, the bits may be different in the resulting compiled program. So Mm -hmm. boom, signature's not going to match, even though it's kind of okay. A thing that used to trip me up 25 years ago (laughs) is, oh, I want to know when I built this. So I'll put a string in my code that I can say, hey, when did I build you? And it'll come back saying, oh, yeah, it was built on Monday, May 10th at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, The problem is when you compile it tomorrow, it'll be Monday, May 11th. Oh, wait a minute. The bits are different. Signatures are not going to align. So it does sound really easy, but uh, as you mentioned, it, it, it can be really hard to say, yep, this really is the same code, that it's only the date that changed and not that back door that got snuck in. Right, right, right. Well, it's also, you know, other things too is like compiler version differences and mm-hmm. things like that where it's like, you know, the diff won't match. Yeah. Right. Yes. And so, the, and so, you know, the whole premise behind... Uh, so we mentioned, you know, there's a relationship between uh, encryption or side, digital signing and encryption. That is, you use the same infrastructure. It's just kind of like you, you do encryption and you turn the encryption upside down and it becomes a signature, right? Um, and uh, now the whole premise of encryption is that uh, if I have encrypted something, uh, one should not be able to uh, take a look at it or manipulate it or mess with it. That is, I can trust that this thing that has been encrypted is not encrypted. Um, at least that used to be true uh, until uh, some knucklehead started ta- using this using this word um, homomorphic encryption, right? Um, and uh, and as a student of Latin and Greek roots, I am intrigued, right? So uh, <laughs> hom- homomorphic uh, that tells me that it's going to be the same uh, the the same change something something. Uh, and so, but in English, I, I, I guess this means. Um, even though something is encrypted, I can still act on the encrypted data and be able to do operations on it, even being ignorant of, of what the actual contents are. Is that a fair summary? And if so, how does this magic work? This sounds impossible. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, you know, I, I do want to emphasize like the importance of homomorphic encryption, why I brought it up uh, at that HPE talk. Uh, and it's because it's related to this mostly trusted concept we, we talked about earlier in the podcast. Um, you know, again, I, I trust the cloud provider not to look at my data. Uh, and even if my data is encrypted in transit, when it gets to a cloud provider, I trust them not to look at it in memory on the host. Uh, and, and for that matter, you know, there are a lot of applications where even knowing what my algorithm is, is giving away information. So I'm trusting them not to you know, like look at my program. Mm-hmm. And the issue is, you know, that's all nice. And, and you know, there are a number of uh, very large publicly traded cloud providers that are offering government-grade cloud services, all based on the premise, we promise not to look. 
Mm -hmm. uh, which means there are still some applications that are not going to move to the cloud anytime soon. Things that are dealing with national security or uh, banking and finance. Uh, you know, there's a lot in the cloud. There's a lot that's not going. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Personal health care, especially in light of HIPAA, you know, that are not going to the cloud. And in fact, uh, you know, you, you opened up by saying, boy, this is kind of confusing and maybe a bad term. I actually don't like it being called homomorphic encryption. Uh, you know, the, the computer scientist in me says, well, it is absolutely encryption. It depends on a lot of uh, encryption theory, the proofs of how and why it works, you know, deals with encryption science. But uh, when I explain it to people, I say, you know, kind of at a very high level, you can think of homomorphic encryption as the scrambling of a CPU instruction set. And I use that term scrambling. Um, so basically, instead of you writing a program in x86 or ARM machine language, which, you know, someone can disassemble that and figure out what it does, uh, the machine sees a scrambled instruction set, and it's basically emulating a scrambled computer. So these instructions mean something to the scrambled computer, but no one can figure out what it is. Uh, and so since an observer can't have an idea what the instructions are, they, they can't disassemble the program. So they can't mm -hmm. see its inner workings. It, it's not like, you know, in the old days when you would uh, use a debugger and step through and see the memory change. Oh, yeah, I've just seen two things get added together. You cannot, you literally cannot see it. Um, and one of the really coolest things is when you write one of these scrambled programs, uh, not only do you scramble the input, that goes to the scrambled program, but the output is scrambled. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that uh, homomorphic is where you have a program that's encrypted somehow, and then, oh yeah, it gets sent up to the cloud and then it gets decrypted. It, it never gets right. decrypted. And the data is never decrypted to be analyzed. It's, it's always scrambled. And it's not like, oh, yeah, and then we get the result, you know, two plus three equals five. And then I, you know, encrypt the five. It, it, it's scrambled throughout. Uh, mm -hmm. So the scramble program runs on scrambled data. And the end, you get scrambled eggs. I mean, you get the scrambled results. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, so, you know, if a cloud provider or an eavesdropper or uh, in the national security sense, we're always worried about uh, system administrators that have been turned. Even if they look, even if they investigate the CPU and the memory, all they see is scrambled chipperish. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. You kind of might wonder, well, wow, that's really great. Why doesn't everybody do that? Why that was going to be my next question. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, so now now this isn't a benchmark. Uh, you know, I started looking at this in the early 2010s, um, and it felt like an IBM Z-scale supercomputer would be able to run one of these scrambled programs with the performance of, say, an Intel 486. Mm -hmm. uh, so not even well, a Pentium, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, as a general purpose platform today, it is actually almost practical. There is a standardization effort underway. It includes Microsoft and Google on the cloud side, a couple of federal agencies, you know, including like NIST, who's, you know, kind of the standard setter for the federal government. 
uh, and the usual university suspects are involved with it. Um, and what got me involved in the early 2010s was a, a very application-specific use case uh, where you can imagine that people would learn about cyber attacks through means that would be before the cyber attack occurred. And if they just published, hey, you know, look out for this attack, then the attackers would say, hey, they know about our attack before it's happened. Maybe we've got a problem. Uh, so how can you share that kind of information without divulging what it is? And, you know, homomorphic encryption was, was an answer. And we found that when we narrowed it, so we weren't building like a general purpose processor that got scrambled. We had a very, very limited uh, kind of like network processor that got scrambled and and then we could get decent, like deployable mm -hmm. uh, performance that you didn't have to deploy on a supercomputer. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay, so so you made the problem smaller by making it domain specific, and then you can kind of then you can kind of. And I expect that actually, what has changed between 2010 and now is that the, now we've got this proliferation of uh, accelerators, right? We've got mm -hmm. these ASICs and FPGAs and all kinds of exotic gigas and GPUs and all kinds of things all kinds of things want to do vector math nowadays that's right um, and so and so i and so i imagine it's i imagine that if you can make it domain specific and then accelerate it with hardware you could probably overcome some of those mm -hmm. uh some of those performance constraints that's really interesting that's yeah. great i feel safer already that's right. <laughs> so i get the sense that uh i get the sense that still a majority of this kind of work and this kind of innovation is happening inside the united states um, but of course, you know, Dave and I are, are fond of talking about um, all of the uh, all the, the cybersecurity work being done at Ben Gurion University in Israel, and of course, Russia and China are no slouches on this topic. Um, and famously, the the barrier to entry for this work is very low, um, and it, it is in many ways kind of a great leveler. All you need is a set of relatively smart people and access to a computer, and you can do some you can do some pretty extraordinary work. Um, and so this is, I know this has come up several times in, uh, in, you know, the, uh, the national defense strategy documents, like that, this is a, like, this is a real threat, right? That, uh, that as we start thinking about, I guess the DOD is thinking about this as this cyber is now another domain, right? In the same way that we think about land, sea, and air. Um, mm -hmm. and so what is that? Can you talk to, can you talk to us a little bit about this, uh, what what is the threat exactly? Uh, I understand the anxiety, but I, it's hard for me to articulate it as like what is the actual threat, and how would we how would, what are the what are the balancing factors? Like how do we address the, the the risk presented? Sure. Well, you know the most prevalent use of cyberspace uh, to date has been to conduct information warfare, and uh, one of the classes I teach at Georgetown is the appropriately tire, titled information warfare class. And in the first class, I say, uh, look, I don't teach you how to hack. That's Ben Buchanan's class. He teaches the class. We do have one of those classes, too, at Georgetown. Um, but, you know, talking about using information uh, to basically manipulate your enemy, to, to, to gain advantage. Uh, and it's, it's kind of old. Uh, in fact, I start out uh, uh, talking about, you know, how well information warfare works. For example, imagine uh, you're at the end of Anatolia, uh, you're the Trojans, and what's your information? The Greeks have sailed away. I've seen the boats go. So, hey, this is cool. The information I've got is they've given up. And not only have they given up, nice 
Greeks. They left us a gift. Uh, that was the information they had, and they acted on that information. They clicked on it. They clicked on it. <laughs> that was the original click on the Trojan, yeah. which is kind of weird because it was the Trojans that were taking it in, but whatever. Um, and you can imagine, you know, today's information warfare is a lot easier. You don't have to, I mean, they, according to the legend, you know, the Greeks built a horse, you know, a monster horse to hold, you know, a whole bunch of warriors in it. Um, but it's also kind of much harder. You know, you know we're now aware of, of these kinds of attacks. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of uh, investigations still ongoing with, uh, you know, meddling in, in, in the affairs of, of the United States by, by foreign governments. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the only kind of warfare going on in cyberspace. Uh, there have been attacks uh, that are cyber attacks that bled into the physical world. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, picking on Ukraine because Russia seems to like to pick on Ukraine. You know, the lights went out in the winter of 2015. And, you know, the power was only down, only down for less than a day. Imagine if the power gets turned off for days. And in a mm -hmm. country like the United States, we depend on power uh, for a lot of things. We have a very advanced society uh, and things that you wouldn't expect start not working when you don't have power. Mm -hmm. I can account for this having lived in Texas through February. Uh, there you go. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. right. Uh, and then another time that they got attacked, you know, the NotPetya attack, you know, it mm -hmm. only destroyed data. So you'd think, oh, this is like a, a classic uh, cybersecurity thing, but you know, basically it turned off the radiation monitors at Chernobyl. And at that moment in time, there were also a couple of assassinations and things going on inside of Ukraine. So, you, you know, you could imagine uh, there was a lot of concern uh, mm -hmm. there about, you know, what else was going to happen as this cyber attack was going on. Um, for at least a decade, I know I've been talking about cyber as being just one component of our diplomatic tool bag. And I call it the diplomatic tool bag because, you know, war is supposed to be the last resort uh, when diplomacy fails. Uh, because, you know, in early 2010s, the policy debates were mostly about, well, hey, if Russia or China does X in cyberspace, what kind of X prime cyber mm -hmm. response is appropriate? And the thing that people forgot is, you know, we've got everything from the Voice of America, a seat on the UN Security Council, all the way through to aircraft carriers, stealth bombers, and ICBMs. Uh, so the choices are not limited to a cyber tit for tat. Mm -hmm. The problem is, you know, that's kind of true today for our near peer adversaries as well. Um, and, you know, as like we've seen in Ukraine and, and elsewhere, the prospects for a cyber war escalating to cyber physical systems is huge. And the prospects of that spiraling into an all out kinetic attack is real, but you know, good or, you know, who needs sleep at night? <laughs> so these are the yeah. kinds of things that keep me up at night. <laughs> well, and, yeah. and it's, uh, and you're right to be asking about the, the, the uh, because it's not simply a military concern. It's actually because it is a military concern. It also must be a diplomatic concern, right? Um, as, as you mentioned, but isn't that complicated by, I mean, one of the hallmarks of the, one of the kind of 
one of the great characteristics of a uh, of a computer of a cyber attack is uh, the the inability to uh, attribute something right right like if somebody shoots an ICBM we can actually track it and we know where it came from right and there's mm -hmm. there's no doubt about who actually shot us right um, whereas with a cyber attack there's always this element of not quite knowing and there there's a reason why people don't claim credit for most cyber attacks right is that they, mm -hmm. they actually enjoy this idea that they that they can't be attributed to them um, and so doesn't that uh, what how do we how do we address that because that seems like it would uh, it would foil the diplomacy somewhat if I don't actually know who I'm whom who I'm to whom I am deploying uh, diplomacy that's right and, and there's uh, you know before I answer that there's also another critical difference you know when an ICBM goes off it's gone right? <laughs> you know, vaporized. it's gone yeah. you know the, the, the receiving party is not going to go oh thanks for the ICBM here back at you Whereas with cyber weapons, uh, and we have seen this uh, on numerous occasions, where you know one country's cyber attack becomes the next country's, or quite often criminal uh, entities, it's their weapon now. You know they're like, oh, thank you very much for for this new advanced weapon. Uh, cool. Yeah. Now I'm going to lock your machine. Thank you very much. Right. Yeah. Uh, no no centrifuges. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. Attribution is really, really hard. Um, and attribution is really, really hard when you're in a country that believes in democracy, freedom of association, freedom of speech. Uh, the Chinese in particular uh, have been promoting, uh, but it, they've been promoting this concept of how we're going to rebuild the internet you know, a new version of something to replace the internet protocol. Um, still very, very sketchy of what they're really proposing. But one of the things they're saying is a benefit of it is, and you'll know absolutely who's speaking on behalf of repressed minorities. I mean, you'd know absolutely who's sending you a cyber attack. And, and <laughs> that is the problem. Um you know, in terms of your, your federal dollars being well spent at Georgetown, we do a lot of work on, um, uh, like right now, we have a, a grant working on the next generation of TOR. You know, how to evade censors, how that minority in Western China can get their message out. Um, in the same department, we had people working on... Um, uh, and this is uh, a couple of years ago, but working with the Massachusetts State Police and the FBI, uh, and they built systems that catch uh, pedophiles who use Tor. Uh, and that's the thing, is the technology doesn't really know what it's being used for. It doesn't know if it's mm -hmm. good or bad. Uh, and that's part of the attribution thing. If we didn't want people in some scenarios to be anonymous, it would be really easy. Uh, but, you know, that, that's what we, and, and as a people, you know, we've, we've regularly done this trade-off saying, well, you know, we'll risk a little bit of the bad guy getting away with it for most citizens most of the time having freedom. You know, it's part of mm -hmm. what we consider to be freedom. Um, and so, yeah, and then that's why, you know, like, at Georgetown, uh, I'm co-PI on our CyberCorps uh, scholarship for pro service. Great program. 
basically every year you get full tuition and stipend and books and professional development paid for. You commit to a year of service in the federal government. And for us, um, half of the students are computer science majors, not all the students. Hmm. The other half are in our security studies program or a master's of foreign service. Uh, I've got one law student now because cybersecurity is as much about uh, anomaly detection and digital signatures and homomorphic encryption as it is diplomats negotiating, hey, look, you know, if we won't blow up your centrifuges, you don't blow up ours. Can we can we make a deal here? Can we can we all live together? And, and that's kind of as important as these defensive and offensive uh, tooling. Yeah. Yeah. Well planned. So, Eric, you know, you, you mentioned CyberCore and government service and everything, and you went from the startup world into government service and everything. And I know you're a very big proponent of that. Um, but what are, what are some of your selling points to convince people to, to go into government service? Like what, what is the outside of the uh, um, fame of being a government employee or, or all the special things you get? Uh, what's, why is it so important? Yeah, it, it really is. And, and, you know, it depends on where you are in your career. When I was at the FCC, uh, you know, the advisor, the wireless advisor to the chair was, uh, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, setting wireless policy for the United States. You know, where do wow. you get to do that? Uh, at my end of the career, what, what uh, got me to, to agree to, to serve as the FCC CTO was, you know, we've been working on uh, basically using these signature techniques we talked about mm-hmm. earlier in the podcast uh, to sign signaling, to sign that, you know, Eric's call David from this phone number and the service provider basically says, oh, by the way, you know, Eric said it's coming from Eric, but Eric's my customer. I really know it's Eric. I'm standing behind that it's Eric. Uh, and that is now today the caller verified or check mark that, that you see on your phone. Uh, before I went to the FCC, I was like a number of technologists going, why isn't the industry just doing this? This is great technology. Um, and it was one of these classic roles of government. Uh, Everyone wanted to be last to deploy it because you spent money on it. It helped everyone else, even though it made it much better for everyone if everyone did it. So, uh, you know, serving in government was an opportunity to make this happen, to make things better for people that no matter how much you, you know, sit in a company or sit in academia or just sit at home on Facebook saying, the government ought to do this, a lot different being on the inside. Uh, I do kind of have a, a, a stock talk that I give now, uh, uh, pitching, you know, mm-hmm. for, for people to uh, either consider government carriers or consider a detail in government. And, you know, I'll admit one of the things is quite often it's, I really want to serve in government because boy, those people are really stupid. They're coming up with really stupid uh, decisions. And, uh, I can tell you that, you know, sometimes they are, mm-hmm. uh, but more often than not, it's because of considerations that, you know, are not front front and center. But once you start thinking about it, you realize uh, that, uh, you know, maybe this isn't, uh, you know, such a stupid policy choice at all. Uh, my experience was, 
well, yeah, that would be stupid. But what about this thing that, that kind of gets the policy goal done, but in a different way? And, and you know, people were really, really receptive to that. Uh, I know a lot of our students go to the NSA. They get to do stuff that, you know, you'd go to jail for in other contexts. But, you know, there it's their job, so they get to play with cool stuff. But, uh, like, for me personally at the FCC, uh, even though I went for this robocalling mitigation, which you know, the carriers are going to have uh, pretty much done the uh, end of the summer. Um, the thing I'm most proud of is the suicide uh, prevention hotline, 988, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is forecast to save 1,400 lives a year. And, you know, short of being an emergency room doctor, there aren't much jobs where you can say, you know, I did this and this will save, you know, people's lives. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so, you know, we have a unique thing. I, you know, I, I've given this talk uh, actually to, you know, people from other countries. And we have this program called the uh, uh, Interagency Personnel Act. And what it does is it's like an exchange program where uh, people can serve um, – from like six months uh, up to, in my case, you know, you time out after four years, I did have to go back to Georgetown. Um, and uh, basically you bring knowledge and experience like the FCC CTO role. Mm-hmm. That is a role pretty much reserved for professors to come in to educate the FCC about the latest and greatest technology but as well, I come back with a much better appreciation for the problems facing the FCC. And, and a lot of agencies do that. Um, and that's part of it is, you, you know, I come back uh, with not only a better appreciation, but, you know, I'm like, you know, if I do this research, this is going to help all of these people. And, and I didn't really know that before uh, serving. So, yeah, no, I'm out there for whether you're at the beginning, middle or end of your career, uh, it's a, a thing to consider either as a career or, you know, just to do for a couple of years to help out. That's great. Yeah, it's a noble work. And uh, and you're right. It's uh, that 988 is that is an accomplishment. And, and I do have to say, and we will put this into the notes, uh, 988 is not available everywhere. Uh, so right now, uh, if that doesn't work, uh, you can dial the easily to remember number one 800 273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The only reason I know that is because I worked on the 988, the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Uh, and again, that's why we believe a short three-digit, easily uh, memorizable number will will save lives. Yep. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um so let's let's close out. Let's let's land the plane with with your vision of the future, Eric. Uh, you know, is is it jetpacks or gray goo or or jetpacks made out of gray goo? Well, you know, clearly, uh, you know, if you're a fan of uh, Back to the Future, it's obviously the gray goo, which which you know, powers everything. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, if you ask me, given it's what I worked on, uh, especially in the White House, is, you know, 5G and AI is clearly the future. Uh, and in all seriousness, it's like the future uh, for the next decade. I mean, yeah, th- there was a lot of work going on, my colleagues working on uh, 
quantum computing and quantum communications, which is a thing. It is becoming more practical, but probably not in the next decade. But 5G with ubiquitous, reliable uh, communication, uh, AI, which is kind of like quantum. We've been working on it since the 1960s. Hmm. Uh, and now it's, you know, people aren't laughing anymore. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, I can go out to IBM or Microsoft and, you know, tie in the library and it just works. Uh, so that, I think, is opening up a lot of new vistas uh, for the future. Nice. Awesome. So, all right, we covered a lot lot to unpack here. Um, so if people want to reflect on this episode and, and go back and start clicking and, and they want to learn more about Shockley's Law, and uh, or Shockey's Law, I guess, mm-hmm. and, and uh, Tor and uh, Georgetown and how to contact you and everything, what website do we want to send them to? Her? Well, well, clearly it would be dgshow.org where all the cool people talk on the podcasts. Yes, of course. Of course. That's many people's homepage uh, to this day. And <laughs> so awesome. Awesome. So thanks a lot, Eric, uh, for joining us. Uh, it, I, I learned a lot uh, as always. And, and so Gunnar, any, any thoughts on your end? No, just thanks for, thanks for joining us, Eric. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, I, and I have to say it's, uh, I hope uh, that someday I can have a resume that reads like yours, going from Belgium to the startups to Georgetown to the FCC. Uh, it's just it's uh, it's very it's quite a ride that you've been on, um, and you can uh, and you can tell the richness of your experience from the conversation we had today. So thank you. Well, Gunnar, it was wonderful to talk with you again. And Dave, I'm glad that uh, Sam Sokola put us together at that HPE event, and uh, I look forward to talking to you all in this context or others again. Yeah, until next time. Absolutely.